Today, we're going to look at Habakkuk's understanding. Habakkuk's understanding. Previously, we have seen and we have looked at the burden. And that's a very good word, isn't it there? The burden which Habakkuk, the prophet, did see. He was burdened by this situation and he couldn't contain himself any longer. How long, O Lord, shall I cry? Then we looked at his initial cry that God was being neglected and rejected by the people. Judgment and justice was not true. There was evil and iniquity throughout the land. The people had fallen away. And God was doing nothing about it. Or so Habakkuk thought. Then we looked at the first response from God. Explaining the situation. And explaining what he was going to do. Now God doesn't have to explain himself. He's above such things. However... We benefit greatly from the insight that can be gathered and gleaned when God does speak and when he speaks to his servants. God tells Habakkuk, the nation will be punished, which is kind of what we, we it, 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 it feels like Habakkuk was after, a correction, a judgment, a punishment for the people. But then God continues and says, he'll use Babylon to do it. That nation, how has he described them here? A bitter and hasty nation, which shall mark through the breadth of the land. I'll use this bitter and hasty nation to correct the people. Now, as we move into chapter 1 verse 12 through to chapter 2 verse 1, we have Habakkuk's reaction to this revelation. To help us today, we're going to look at this in three different ways. Firstly, what Habakkuk understands about God, as revealed from these verses. Secondly, what Habakkuk does not understand about God. Again, taken from these verses. And then thirdly, what Habakkuk understands about himself. So hopefully that will help break it down and we'll understand <clears throat> what um, these verses are telling us. So the first thing we're going to look at today is what he understands about God. <clears throat> very helpful when people say a lot in a very short space of time and in very few words without diluting the message and without skipping through things. Habakkuk gives us a really dense description and his understanding of God in verse 12. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one, we shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment and, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. 
then thou were of purer eyes than to behold evil <clears throat> or iniquity that can be read I mean, that comes across quite often doesn't it in the Psalms that's a very common phrase throughout the Psalms so in verse 12 Habakkuk tells us an awful lot about his knowledge of God and we would do well to understand this much of God art thou not from everlasting that's a good starting point for us isn't it from everlasting is a question from when do we start to measure time the immediate thought to, when you hear that is to, to look at a clock 7pm almost or 1900 hours if you do the 24 hour clock so from the start of this day we have had a minute shy of 19 hours we like to understand time don't we especially in the west because we have schedules and things to do and it makes things convenient so from the start of the day we're 1900 hours what year are we in 2021 where do we come to the start of that point from from why why have we started from that apparently from the birth of jesus christ although that's debatable uh, apparently we're about four years out on that as well so i can't remember which way so whether it's 2025 or 2017 i don't know hopefully 2017 because that would mean i'm not yet 50 Or do we take our time from Genesis? In the beginning, God created. That would be a good one, wouldn't it, to use? Because then that would put us at about 6,000 or so in terms of years. But what does Habakkuk say of God? Did he start 6,000 years ago? Or 4,000 years before Habakkuk? Thou art from everlasting. So time began effectively in the beginning God created. God created time. Gave us days and seasons and years. But God does not live in creation. God is beyond the creation he is beyond time. He is from everlasting. So therefore, he will go to everlasting. Now, that's a phrase and a concept I think we would all admit we will struggle to completely understand because our minds are so linear, aren't they? We, we work in a time frame. How can this be? How can God be outside of time? Well, it helps maybe something to understand that God created time. So creation, time is a creation of God. So he is, he made time. Did he make time for himself? No, he made time and seasons for us. How we choose to measure it, it's, 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 that's just our thing. But the days are set. The years are set based on the, the cycle around the, uh, the, 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 the celestial bodies which God has created. But in addressing his issues that he doesn't quite fully understand, Habakkuk starts with, you are from everlasting. You are beyond time. You are beyond measure. 
Is that not a good starting point? God has no beginning and no end. This is who I am going to with my petition. I am petitioning the one who is from everlasting. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord, my God? And when we have Lord in capitals there, we have Jehovah. And what do we know of Jehovah? Jehovah has the concept around it of self-existence. God does not need anything to support him to exist. We read this morning, didn't we? Uh, Oh, Glenn read this morning. That verse, before Abraham was, I am. Self-existent. Before Abraham, I was fully existent. Before this world, I fully existed. Self-existence. No need to support or anything to support God in his existence. You've all heard the phrase, I'm sure, no man is an island. You know, we can't live on our own. We can't support ourselves in isolation. How do plants grow? You can put the seeds in the ground. You can water them. There's nutrition in the soil. Do they always grow? Certainly not in our back garden because it's mostly clay. Because God gives the increase. The plants don't grow off their own accord. They need support to grow. How did we individually get here today? And I don't mean by car or foot walking here. How were we born? We were not self-existent. You know, we, we had to be born. God is self-existent. And this is again the one to whom Habakkuk is petitioning from everlasting, self-existent, the great I am. And he carries on. Thou art from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one. In very simple terms, we understand holy to mean separate from sin. And we think of that in an absolute term with God. We strive to be holy, don't we? We strive to be separate from sin. We strive to be these things. But we aren't perfect. We are tainted with sin. God, as acknowledged by Habakkuk, is separate from sin. Everything with God is pure. Everything with God is right. Everything with God is good. And he enforces that, doesn't he, by saying in verse 13, thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. You can't even look on evil. You are that holy and that pure. And again, this is the God to whom Habakkuk um, petitions from everlasting, self-existent, the great Jehovah, the Holy One. As a result of all of these things, Habakkuk recognises we shall not die. Now that is in relation to the nation, not himself. He doesn't know for himself or those immediately around about him. But the nation will be preserved. We shall not die. God is sovereign. He acknowledges the sovereignty of God. God is in control. Therefore, the nation shall not die. No matter what comes, no matter what follows, we shall not die. 
It shows his confidence in God. It shows his trust in God. And it shows some understanding of who God is and what God can do. And then we carry on. Thou hast, hast ordained them for judgment, and Almighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Now we've seen judgment in the first chapter several times. Firstly, Habakkuk complains that the judgment that is being administered in the nation is not just. It is um, a wrong judgment and it is being executed for the wrong reasons. The people are exploiting the weaker members of society and imposing their judgment. Therefore the law is slacked and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. And then we read, God says, I'll send the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. So, the nation of Israel was issuing wrong judgment. The Chaldeans or the Babylonians would come and administer their brand of judgment. Neither are correct. And Habakkuk acknowledges this and responds by saying, You have ordained them for judgment and has established them for correction. But God's judgment, based on the fact that he is holy, he is from everlasting and is almighty and all-powerful and is in control, his judgment is perfect and pure and holy. And again, because he is of purer eyes than to behold evil, his judgment will be correct. So Habakkuk understands a lot about God. He understands he is from everlasting, therefore to everlasting. He is eternal. He is the great Jehovah, the I am, the self-existent God. He is holy, separate from sin. He is sovereign. He is in control. And he is a righteous and just judge. So Habakkuk starts his response by praising and glorifying God, by listing and naming his attributes. And that does us good to start with God and to list and to name his attributes. There are many more that we could pick. And it would be a good study to do sometime, to work through the attributes of God, to praise him for who he is made up of his character and his personality. But we have a handful there to, to enjoy and to praise God for. And with Habakkuk, we can understand something more of God. So he understands about God. But also, he reveals what he does not understand about God. We read in verse 13. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he. And makest men 
as the fishes of the sea and as creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with their angle and catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? What he doesn't understand about God. Firstly, why doesn't God act now? Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously and hold thy tongue when the wicked devour the man that is more righteous than he? You have purer eyes than to behold evil. And there is this iniquity that is going on in the land. Terrible things are going on. Terrible things are happening. And you hold your tongue. You do not speak out. You do not speak against these things. Do we ever think like this? Do we ever think, why isn't God acting now? Why is God holding his tongue? This is one of those um, situations where I think we will all have to answer yes, at least sometimes, at least sometime. Why doesn't God act now? Why is the world in such a mess? Why are these things happening? The second thing that he doesn't seem to understand about God is why is he using the wicked to devour those who are more righteous? As we read in verse 13, thou cannot look upon, uh, wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously and hold thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he. Why are the Babylonians going to devour the nation of Israel? The more righteous nation. Firstly, there are none righteous. No, not one. We need to understand that. What's so special about this nation that you've been complaining about, Habakkuk? You've been explaining about the injustice and the wickedness that's going on. What makes you think that they're any more righteous than the Chaldeans? There is none righteous, no, not one. They are all being judged and all will be judged. God has said that he will judge them. Judge the people, that is what they deserve. We can look back, can't we, over the pages of history, through the pages of scripture, and we can see God's plans as they have been worked out. But so could Habakkuk. Habakkuk could have looked back. There was a 400 or so year period of the judges, when the judges ruled. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. What's so different about this Habakkuk? What's so different about this time than that period when God sent different people to judge the nation and then raised up his people on repentance 
to deliver them back from their captivity. Reflecting back over how God has been in the past is a good way to help us understand current situations. This is no different. This situation was no different from those times. Why is he using a wicked nation to devour those who are more righteous? Rather than focus on the the wicked nation, I think the focus should be on those who are more righteous and ask, are they more righteous? And in what capacity do you say so? Oh, but these are God's chosen people. God's chosen people should know better and should not be sinning against the light. And the third thing that we see that he doesn't seem to understand about God is why he let them carry on without any limits. We take this up in verse 15. They take up all of them with the angle and they catch them in their net and gather them in their drag. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Quite topical at the moment, isn't it, in terms of overfishing, sort of drag nets. You know, two boats out in the water with a net between the two and they just sweep up everything in between and then close the two boats in together and capture everything in the net. That is the, the image we have here. This is what he's saying. Why are the Babylonians going to be allowed to just sweep up everything? Sweep up everything in their midst, not just fishing. When you gather the fish, you gather... This is one of those sort of troubling things about the... Um, the dragnets with the big trawlers, they just take dolphins and sharks and whales and everything else that's passing by gets swept up in the nets and then just cast aside because it's not needed. Shall they therefore empty their nets and not spare continually to slay the nations? The dragnets just destroying all, just sweeping up all before them. Why are you letting them carry on without limit? But in verse 16, therefore they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense upon their drag because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. They are giving credit to their gods. They are acknowledging their gods, giving them the victory. They boast in their success and then they praise and worship their gods for giving them this success. Why are they carrying on without limit? Again, Habakkuk could look back to Job. Job gives us a very clear insight, doesn't he? To behind, I, I often think of it as a behind-the-scenes um, view when you look at the Lord uh, God speaking um, to Satan and saying, you can go this far and no further. You can go this far and no further. And he was restricted to that. So it was here. The Babylonians, you can go this far and no further. God is in control. As Habakkuk himself has acknowledged, we shall not die. You are in control. But why are you letting them do this? I'm letting them do this and no more. It's interesting to think about how Habakkuk responded Because we will fall into the same thoughts from time to time. And really we shouldn't. Why is God allowing this? Why are these people not being restrained? Why doesn't God act now? 
And we especially shouldn't be feeling like this after we have just listed this, some of the great attributes of God. You are all powerful. You are in control. You are beyond creation. You are beyond all of these things. You are perfect. You are holy. You are a just and righteous judge. So the question shouldn't be, why are these things happening? It should be more focused on, Lord, help me through these times. So, how does then Habakkuk recover himself? And that leads us very kindly into, or nicely into our final point. What Habakkuk understands about himself we we'll see that in chapter 2, verse 1. He's acknowledged how great and mighty God is. He's emptied himself of his complaints and put them to God. Why, why, why? Then, a very encouraging uh, verse, I think, in chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me. And what I shall answer when I am reproved. This gives us a good insight again into the thoughts of Habakkuk. Good theology falls into two sort of categories. One, God. The study of God. Start with God. The second part is man. As he stands before God. It's not God and man. It's God and then man as he stands before God. So don't ever think of man in isolation when we are thinking of theology. It is all how we stand before God. This is what we have here. He has acknowledged God in his greatness. Now he sees how he should stand before God. Note the position he takes i will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower so you've got two two points there firstly to stand upon the watch who is effectively going if you can imagine this to sort of like a fort or a castle a fortified place and if you ever look at castles where are they genuinely situated strategically somewhere usually elevated and which part of this fortification is he going to? He is going to the tower. So, from a high place, he picks the highest place. And what is the reason for that? Why would you go to the highest point of a fortified place? So you can see out. So you can see further. So picture that and get an understanding of what Habakkuk is saying there he wasn't physically going to climb the tower in the fortification to look out for God he is positioning himself there sort of in a, in a um, to give us an example to, to understand so he has set himself in a place where he is waiting and looking for the Lord to speak to him not only is he somewhere where he can see he is actively looking 
I I was thinking about this this afternoon and a number of times when we've been um, in in Austria, we we go out into the the, the forests, walking through the trails, and you'd be looking to just just explain the difference between us to see and to look. You can see in the distance a mound, and it's it's quite interesting. There's a bit of a mound over there, but when you look closely, you will find that it is an ant hill, and I'm. I don't think this is an exaggeration, but I'm fairly sure there'll be about a million, about a million ants in there. You know, things about this high, uh, this high and about, you know, this one. And just, it's an anthill, but it's, it's a mound. If you just look, if you, if you, if you just see something in the distance, it's a, it's a mound. But if you look carefully, you see what it really is and you see the detail. This is what we have with Habakkuk, not only is he telling us that he has gone to a place so he can see far and wide, but he is looking, he is focused, he has his attentions set upon the Lord. So we learn a few things from him there. He is finally, he has vented, as it were, and said, I don't understand this, I don't understand this, I don't understand this. Then this is the acknowledgement, the first thing that he acknowledges, I don't understand God fully. I don't know. And it's an almost an appreciation. I don't know these things. I don't know God. Canst thou by searching find out God? We can find it and know a lot more than we do now, but we will never exhaust our understanding of God or his ways, especially his ways. There's an acknowledgement from Habakkuk. So what do you do if you acknowledge that you don't know? He looks for God. I will set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me. So he sets himself upon a watch. He is looking for God. Why? Because he's admitting he doesn't know what to do next. He doesn't understand. He is looking for God to reveal himself and to lead him forward. So it should be with us. We should be looking for God to lead us forward. We can look in the scriptures, can't we, for God to lead us forward. We can understand more of God by reading the scriptures. Now, even today, we have learned a lot about God, perhaps which we already knew and it's been a refresher, but perhaps also we've learned something new. He is beyond time. He is from everlasting. He is self-existent. He is holy. We've learned these things or refreshed ourselves on these things. I don't know. I will look to God to lead me forward. And finally, we see that he waits on God. I will stand upon my watch. I will set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. There's an acknowledgement, isn't it? What I shall answer when I am reproved. He's expecting some form of correction because he's admitted he doesn't know. He is waiting on the Lord. He has gone to that place of isolation, of separation, to sit and wait. Can you imagine this? It's just, in effect, Habakkuk and his God. And that's a good example for us, isn't it? We should get to that place where we are separate from everything, even for a short period of time. And it is just me before my God. And I am waiting for him to speak to me. He understands about himself that he doesn't know fully God's ways. 
He understands about himself he needs to look for God. And he understands about himself he needs to wait for God. So may we pick up these points. What can we learn? God is beyond our understanding. But we can understand a lot more, can't we? We can understand him a lot more. We need to look to him. We need to look to God to lead us, to guide us, to reveal himself to us. And we need to wait upon him. Wait for the Lord to speak to me. But that requires patience. That requires a stillness of our heart. That requires a dedication and a focus. We can't just be waiting while we're flitting around thinking about other things. Sometimes we need to wait upon the Lord in quietness and stillness. Sometimes we need to visit our quiet times again and again and then the Lord will draw near to us. So it is with Habakkuk. He sat and he waited and he watched for the Lord. We don't have to wait too long to find out what happened next because verse 2 tells us, and the Lord answered me and said, and we'll move into that, God willing, at a later date. But just as a foretaste, as I was looking at this again the other day, write the vision and make it plain upon the tables that he may run that readeth it. So there's action required, not on the part necessarily of Habakkuk, but on the part of those who hear it, that they may run when they read it. So it should be with us that we may run when we read the word of God, run into prayer, run into praise, run into a request for understanding of more. Habakkuk understood something of God. He revealed or exposed his knowledge of these great truths of God. He revealed his lack of understanding about God. Why are these things not happening now? Very similar questions that we will have today. Why do these things happen? Why does God not intervene? Why is God's tongue silent? It's not silent. It's wait. It's not time. But then, importantly, Habakkuk understood about himself and how he sat before God, how he needed to wait for God, how he needed to look for God. Lord, may we take these points ourselves and look to God and wait for God to lead us and to guide us and to take us forward. Amen.